Welcome to the weekly podcast from Spring of Life Church, located in the heart of downtown Portland. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. For more information, visit us at springoflifepdx.com. Yesterday specifically was defined by two key events. The first uh, is a ritual in our family that we call Daddy-Daughter Date. Many people do it. Um, We do it very often. Every time my daughter demands it, she's very strong-willed. So it's pretty simple. I kind of walk outside of our house, ring the doorbell. She comes to the door, and I get to pick her up. And uh, we have a tendency to go to this place in town called Wonderland. It's this nickel arcade, kind of grungy, kind of cheesy, but uh, great for bonding experiences. And normally we go so that I can play loads and loads of Space Invaders to win enough tickets to buy her prizes. And we both leave happy. Um, So we had attended a really fancy kid's birthday party earlier in the day. And so my daughter was wearing this beautiful gold brocade dress that she insisted to keep on. So there we are with like all these sweaty teenagers and my four-year-old daughter in a gold dress and when we get there we find out that this arcade also has a movie theater and they're playing like a cartoon so I was like this is perfect Valentine why don't we go see a movie and she's like yes and so I take her to see Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse which turned out to be a super intense movie that we found out about halfway through as spoiler alert people are dying Um, and I'm like looking at her reaction trying to gauge the level of nightmares that I've introduced for us Um, like how much sleep are we gonna get tonight Um, but we walk out of the movie and she's still doing good I'm like you want to keep playing she's like let's keep playing and so I was like why don't we play some arcade games and they have like some kid-friendly games where you can like put the fruit over in the basket or like push the ducky over. And she's like, I don't want to play that game. She uh, walked up to the Terminator game. And so we took our big machine guns and we were just like blowing away all of the robots. And uh, all I think of is I just wish we didn't have to tell your mom about all of this. Um, but I did it because I'm an amazing dad. Um, But on the way home, I was just trying to, like, engage her in conversation. She's super verbal and processes things. And so I was like, what'd you think? And she was like, Dad, I loved it. It was so awesome. Today was all about good guys and bad guys. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, I am a good guy. And, Dad, you're a good guy. And good guys can have superpowers. But good guys should never hang out with the bad guys. And I was like, okay. And then she goes, but wait a second. Good guys have to hang out with the bad guys because that's how the good guys save the day. And I was like, stop stealing my message from me, honey. That's daddy's job. There's a second defining event that took place yesterday that was just a little bit less fun to talk about. My very first ministry job ever, I got to serve as a student pastor. I was a middle school pastor, and I served alongside the student pastor who was over high school. And it was this uh, funny guy named Sterling Lynn. And to try to describe this outsized personality is challenging unless you have seen the television show The Office and the character portrayed by Steve Carell, Michael Scott. That was like exactly uh, Sterling. In fact, so much so that we did a youth skit video one time where Sterling actually portrayed Michael Scott. But there's actually so much more to Sterling than just that. He was my very first partner in crime and ministry. We figured out a lot of stuff together. He was a little bit older and more experienced than me. Um, he had just like the best laugh you could ever hear. Laughed at all my jokes, even if they weren't funny. But let's be honest, most of them are a little bit funny. Um, and he could also be extremely kind. 
Uh, Sterling was just a key figure in my life in that vulnerable period where Jesus was calling me to Portland to sell everything and leave everything familiar and go to a new place. And uh, I just remember like unpacking so much of that, an hours long conversation in Sterling's office. I was sitting in my reading chair yesterday and I got a text from my grandmother that Sterling had gone out hunting yesterday and gone missing and some friends went out to find him and they found him dead. He had been out hunting on a friend's lake and they suspect that he had a sudden heart attack and it's just super shocking even now. It really hasn't sunk in. And so uh, in moments like this, I just you know, try to give myself time to process. Like my daughter, I am an auditory processor. So talking things out helps. And I was really shocked and still am. I was just reflecting from yesterday and today uh, about the fact that I got to serve as Sterling's oldest daughter's college pastor and got to just watch her enter this interesting, vulnerable time of discovery. Uh, I got to serve as Sterling's youngest daughter's middle school pastor. And so just in our time together, our lives and family were intertwined, as so often happens in the family of God. And I got to see as his youngest son, Dakota, was born, who is just rambunctious and full of life. And I'm devastated for that family today and the sense of loss that they no doubt are feeling. There's another thing about Sterling, and it was this, is that Sterling was an evangelist. He's one of the most passionate proclaimers of the gospel that I'd ever met in my life. Sterling never missed an opportunity to share the story about Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus later in life, and it was like he never forgot that mystery. And um, Man, he was just so gifted. He's just one of those guys when he could preach to a crowd. It's like the Holy Spirit would use his words to access hearts in new ways, and person after person would come to a saving knowledge of faith in Jesus. Not only that, but Sterling uh, uh, was serving at our sending church uh, up until yesterday, where he led the baptism ministry and loved celebrating new life in Jesus. I was listening to the live stream from my home church this morning while I was getting ready for church, and my pastor was just sharing about the last conversation he ever had with Sterling. And uh, it made me think about the fact that you and I, we will all have last words one day, won't we? These conversations and this journey that we experience together, one day it, that'll be it. The, the exit point for this planet is 100%. Um, but my pastor went on to share that the last conversation he had with Sterling was regarding a mission trip that Sterling had just returned from. He had led these men that he had been discipling to go share Christ with another group of people, I believe somewhere in the South. My pastor was sharing the story about how excited Sterling was, but instead of talking about the sites they got to see or the projects, his heart was heavy for the people they ministered to. He said, Pastor, there's just so many of them that still don't know Jesus, and I just can't stop thinking about them. He said, would you pray for them? Would you pray that they would see the goodness and glory of God? And it struck me, Sterling's a man of vision. He sees the world not as he wants it to be or needs it to be, but as it really is. And he left this world with the real things on his mind. We see this reflected in just like, you know, the stuff and writings that he left behind. Social media is this interesting capture device for our snippets of life. Uh, Sterling uh, was uh, always a good fan of a dad joke, posted lots of them online, but he would also post things that he was learning from God in his own personal life. And last Thursday, he posted a passage of scripture from Romans chapter 11. 
And one of the verses said this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. And then Sterling shared some of his own personal thoughts. He said this, This is a great reminder of what my life is about and where it really comes from. Heaven looks better and better every day because of who I get to spend it with. Looking forward to being with a father. You tell him, Sterling. Sterling had a vision. We're in the midst of a vision series. I think that sometimes in moments like this, we can be terribly clever. But what a powerful, beautiful, perfect reminder of what can happen when we elevate our eyes and our sight and our gaze to the world that lasts forever. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, So we are always of good courage, because we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And the scripture shows us that the instant Sterling was no longer inhabiting his body on this planet, he was ushered into the presence of the king of eternity. This reminds me of so much. I mean, it was impossible not to be processing this as I was reflecting on speaking today. It reminded me that we can do lots of things in this world that are good. They're good. But there's this truth that we're reminded of in moments like this. That once we spend our time, we never get it back. It leaves us with the question, what are we doing with ourselves? I think that it uh, is fine sometimes for us to ask that freshman in college existential question. Who am I and what am I doing here? What am I here for? And I think more churches should ask that question on a regular basis so we don't get too comfortable, so we don't get too stagnant in what we're doing, that we don't end up playing this cute little game of religion and pretension, that we are always asking the question, who are we really and what are we here for? And then today I just had deeper answers to that question. We are here because evil exists, but so does hope. What are we going to do about it? Some of you might be thinking, man, vision series, gosh, you're making it sound like this, what we're doing is life or death. I would say, no, it's not life or death. It is so much more. Life is over in a vapor, in a breath. We are talking about something else. You see, if eternity does not exist, then none of this matters. On the other hand, if eternity really exists, then nothing else matters. That's why we're here. The story of Spring of Life didn't begin three years ago when Andrea and Aaron moved across the country or when the Lord began stirring in some of your hearts. Uh, you didn't even know he was preparing you to take part in a church plant, yet he was, and here you are. It, it didn't start a year and a half ago when we launched public services in July of 2017. It happened centuries ago. See, because evil has an origin story. It's a story that took place in a garden really before that when a wicked angel wanted to be like God without God. The greatest treachery. He failed, as he will again and again, and ultimately will in the end. And in the midst of his failure, this wicked creature turned his attention to God's most precious creation. And make no mistake, 
The reason that you have value and worth is not because what you can accomplish or what you can establish or what you can amass or gain. It's not about who you can impress. It's not about what you can fake. The games you can play. No, your worth is rooted in something far more valuable. The fact that God of creation made an expansive universe and wasn't done yet. He created humanity in his image. You are unique in the cosmos because you are formed and made in the image of God for this special purpose of intimacy with God that needs to explode your thinking every day for you to truly understand who you are. And the world is set up to confuse you of your reality made in the image of God for intimacy with God. And so that enemy crept into that garden, that man and that woman were. They were living in perfect harmony with God, these eternal beings, because they had perfect intimacy with God, who's the source of love and the source of all life. And that wicked enemy gave the most tempting offer that you and I fall for all the time, that we can be like God without God. And so Adam and Eve fell for it. And in their rebellion, that perfect unity between God and humanity was severed. And because the connection to life was severed, death entered the world. And it's been wreaking havoc ever since. You know, I would never blame God. After people who he made to love, he blessed with goodness, he pursued with kindness. I would never blame God if he wanted to wipe it all out and start again. I would never blame God if his vision was to restart. But what a marvelous, compassionate, merciful God that his vision was not just to restart, but his vision was and is restoration. What glory is that? What hope is that? You see, we see that because of sin and the penalty we deserve, that the destiny of every sinner is to pay the price for our own sin, to pay our own price for God's anger and God's broken heart on our own. That our destiny, what we deserve, is to spend eternity in a place created for that wicked tempter, Satan himself, a place severed from the presence of God once and for all with all the torment that that would bring. That's our destiny. Yet in all of this darkness, there still remained a shining, glorious hope. There remained a promise. And it was a promise that Jesus both fulfilled and explained. May we never, ever, ever make this a game. May we never lose sight of what this really is. John 3, verse 16, Jesus explained to a religious man. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is why we as a church say it's not about religion. If the understanding of religion is a set of rules and regulations for behavior modification to appease a distant deity. That Jesus, his stated mission was never about religion. His stated mission was about rescue. Let us never forget that as a church.
couple of weeks ago, I was like doing something I never do. I flipped through the channels on like real TV, not just Amazon or Netflix. And I came across this old movie I hadn't seen forever. It's that movie called Titanic. And it's like right at the sad part, like the, the boat is going down. And I don't know if you've seen that movie. I mean, if you haven't, like, where have you been? Um, but uh, I forget how sad it can be. And the moment that chokes me up every time is the moment uh, with the mom who's like tucking her kids into bed on the ship that they couldn't escape. And she's telling them the story of Tirnanog. And I'm like, I've never heard of Tirnanog or Agnog or whatever, but it's so sad. And, uh, and what's even more sad is to realize this is based on true events. That there is this story of rescue, but only for some. That those who are in the right place at the right time, with the right resources, were able to get onto the lifeboats. And the movie paints the picture of some people who are very concerned with rescue until they found their rescue. And immediately, they became concerned with comfort. Lifeboats are for saving people, yet it was just inevitable that people begin to turn inward really quickly instead of a lifeboat being a place that could save someone from a terrible fate. It becomes a place that we want to be more comfortable for ourselves. And if we're not careful, the same thing happens in our churches. If this becomes a club, if this becomes a game, if we're not comfortable, I mean, if we're not careful, we begin to forget those who still need this message we turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to the suffering around us. We forget the privilege and glory of the knowledge of Jesus that we have been given. But I hope that you and I never forget, never forget about those who still have a chance to hear this message. The story of Titanic, it's not a one-time event. It's not a theory. No, we see this happening every day. I think it's great when the church takes stands on issues. I think it's important. Um, I think it's really important. But I think there's some that we skip. What about the travesties of apathy? The travesties of preference? And God help us for our pseudo-spirituality. And I do mean God help us. Because lest we forget, God sees and one day we will give an account. What does God say about all this anyway? I think it's so important to root a vision like this in the scriptures. I think there's a lot of people with my personality type who stand on platforms like this with microphones like this. And perhaps they have ulterior motives. Perhaps they want to build bigger congregations. So they have bigger platforms to preach to. And there might have been a time in my life when I wanted that. But I would have gone into a different line of work this I'm standing here today because of this long wrestling process with Jesus, and so many of you are sitting here today because you've been through a similar moment in your life. But I'll tell you why I'm here. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. And let me just show you the judgment seat of Christ. I've studied this a bit. It refers to what's called a bema seat judgment. This is a Greek idea. So many of you have heard of the Olympic Games. And when someone competes in the Olympics, 
even today, so like if someone does great at ice skating and they win first place, what do they do? They go stand on a higher point of a platform. Someone gets second place, they stand on the lower platform, third place, the lower platform. And this Bema seat refers to a rewards platform. And this is a judgment referred to for believers. Uh, that one day, every person who has believed and trusted in Jesus Christ will stand completely exposed for how we spend our time. And I've studied this passage a lot, open to conversation, but in my heart of hearts, here's where I believe. Your life will be measured on two pendulums. Did you spend your time worthwhile or worthless? Worthwhile or worthless? The passage is so beautiful, and it wraps up with verse 20 that says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's why we do what we're do, doing. Not because it's cute, not because it's clever, not because we need one more spiritual organization. We are doing it because we believe that there is a real darkness, but a living hope that overcomes. And we are overcome that when we were the least deserving, God in his mercy did not just send us a life raft. He came for us. He came for us, so much so that the one who never knew a single sin stretched out his arms and paid the punishment of God, not just so that you could be okay, so that you could become the living manifestation of God's righteousness in you through his spirit. What hope is this? What message is this? What glory is this? And we are either a people who believe this or we don't. But let us get bored with the in-between. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 11 says, we persuade others. We live in a city who doesn't always want to hear what we have to say. Yet we must understand and know where we come from. We are not signing people up for our club. We are not trying to put people on our team. We just want people to have a chance to hear the real story. We honor their freedom. We honor their choices. However, in 7,000 gospel conversations as a church, there's one thing that we've learned. When people say they're rejecting a form of Christianity, we join with them and reject that same false form of behavior modification Christianity. That when it comes to the true gospel, we have found so many people who have never even had a chance to hear the real thing, and that's why we're here. And so because of these truths, we have a vision that we are just redefining for ourselves as we march into 2019. It's so important that we root this in a spiritual truth, but it's equally important that it becomes reality in the choices that we make and the way we spend our time as a congregation. This mission defines some things that we will do, and it will also define some things that we will not do. 
We are not about making the lifeboat more comfortable for the people who are already in it because we believe the thrill of rescue is even better. There's three things that we're determining from this. First is this. We will live as a church on mission. Not just say it, but do it. (laughs) Our mission is not that we will really save the world. We leave that to Jesus. Our mission is not that we will have the perfect answer all the time, though we will allow our hearts to be prepared. We will grow in this faith. We will study what we can study. We will surrender what we can surrender. But we begin with a choice that, yes, we will walk into the mission. And here's what it is. In Romans 10, we believe verse 14 begins the story. How? How will they call on on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Where does it all change? When people vote differently? No. When people show up to the right place on Sunday? No. It changes when they call upon God. That's the revelation. That's the glory. That is kingdom of God crashing through into this broken world we inhabit. That's beautiful. But where does it begin? It begins with people who are sent. So how will we exist as a church? We will be a church that sends people. If you know right now you have no interest in ever being sent You should hear now, this may not be the place for you. Not that we don't love you. Not that we don't want to walk with you. But we can't help ourselves from seeing these scriptures and giving a truthful eye for what they might mean. If I told you that today on the way to church I walked by a fire and I could hear cries inside and I had the chance to rush in and help someone, but I didn't, you would say, Aaron, you're a monster. And yet, we turned a blind eye every day to the reality of eternity. I know I've done it. God, help me. With your help, I don't ever want to do it again. Let's help each other. Let's help each other. Because we believe we have a living hope. And so here's what we're going to do. We're not going to try to do it all on our own. No, we can't. This is Jesus' work. And so here's how we unpack living as a church on mission. We will start with asking God to define this mission. We will send out marketplace missionaries into neighborhoods and classrooms and coffee shops and grocery stores. Not people who are perfect, people who celebrate the fact that they are not perfect and revel in a newfound grace. See, mercy is being spared from what you deserve, but grace is being given what you don't deserve. The minute you think you deserve it, it stops being grace. We will live and walk as people of grace. We will build a church primarily for the people who are not here yet. We care about what you want, but we have this underlying belief that you will let go of your preferences the more you seek glory. And glory is experienced through mission. We will grow leaders here who don't just do the work of the ministry, but learn how to carry the weight of the ministry. This is one of our biggest lessons that we've learned here. It's not just a series of tasks and functions. 
some of the training that we do won't just be training people how to talk about God, but rather we want to get in your heart and see where it's at. We want to give you permission to do the deeper work of growth. We want to give you the tools and the space and the freedom to deal with stuff that God really wants to deal with because we believe that changing lives help change lives. And when we need healing, the first step is to find a safe place to be broken. And so sometimes that will be part of our leadership development. We will sacrifice preferences for this mission. And here's my favorite part. We'll work together. There's parts you can do that I can't do. God has formed you in a unique version of his image that I just won't hold up to. Praise God. I'm never going to compete with you. I'm going to celebrate you and want to see you be your best. And same here. There's some things I can do that you can't do. We're not going to try to be each other all the time. We are going to join together for this mission. The second thing, we will live and tell a story of good news. We will live and tell a story of good news. Man, I grew up in a church where we would hear messages like this all the time, and people would nod along and feel guilty for a few minutes and go back to normal because that's just what we were used to doing. Uh, and so when I heard this word gospel, here's how I felt it. I felt it as obligation. I felt it as guilt. Uh, I felt it as a system that I struggled to explain. But it's so beautiful when you remember what the word gospel really means. Tell me, anybody who knows, what does gospel mean? Good news. Good news. I think I shared this before, but I was at a missions conference a couple months ago, and there was a missionary there who was serving in Haiti who did some transformative work. He was telling us a bit about it, and he said, if you want to go in and tell the story of Jesus in Haiti, and you just want to do it cold, people can't hear you because they can't hear you over the sound of their bellies growling in hunger. He said, if you were going to go in and share the message of Jesus, the first thing you need to do in your community is ask the question, what does good news look like in this community? He said for us in Haiti, that was easy to discover. Childhood, starvation, and hunger is a crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. And so you know what we did? We used our gifts and our time and our talent and our resources. We used strategy and structure and ingenuity. And we came back to the United States. We work with nutritionists and scientists to find this wonderful package of nutritious and tasty food. We found economical ways to pack this in mass. And we used our influence to raise money and uh, help from other churches. And every single day, not once a year, not twice a year, Every single day, we are now feeding thousands of children in Haiti. And do you know how easy it is to talk about Jesus to people who have experienced what good news feels like? He said, I want to challenge you. As you go back to your community, ask the question, what does good news look like? I've been thinking a lot about that lately. What does good news look like in Portland, Oregon? And uh, I've had some thoughts. I've done some research. I have read a bunch of books. I've talked to a lot of people, and I've been praying. And not that I think I know everything, but I think that God is beginning to guide us into something really cool and really specific. I think that the key to ministry in Portland is relationships. I think that Portland has a unique challenge building relationships. Not exclusive. Uh, it's a millennial and generational issue. Relationships form differently. But there's a couple of factors that I begin to consider with this. 
The first factor I begin uh, came from a book I read called Wicked Portland. And Wicked Portland is not a Christian book. It's a historical account of how this city formed. It said that unique to other places up and down the East Coast, which formed through family relationships and family bonds, where families would sort of live together on uh, communal pieces of property, building farms and working together and staying close, that Portland, on the other hand, was founded by pioneers, people who are willing to leave those family units for adventure and new opportunities for the timber industry and some remnants of gold mining. And so our city began to form over time and these people without family structure and sense of belonging began to fill up their time with vices. And so from an early stage, gambling and drinking and prostitution were the inherent foundation of our city in so many ways. Again, these are not exclusive to our city, but the concentration was unique. The ironic thing, according to the book, is that while the city uh, was living in this lascivious lifestyle, it actually had a reputation for hardworking frontier people. And so if you had a wayward child in the Northeast who needed to be reformed, parents of good means would send that kid to Portland, thinking it would straighten them up and get them back on their feet. And instead, you find these runaways and these isolationists, and these pioneers, not really having a foundation for deep relationships. And if you took those ingredients and added a hundred years, what would you expect to find? Portland, Oregon. <laughs> not exclusive, but unique. So there's a, every city has a narrative, and that's the narrative of our city. There's a second thing I've been studying, and it's the link between healthy mental health and relationships. Uh, I refer to this all the time because I think it's so fascinating that the, Har the Harvard Human Health Study, which was the longest running behavioral study ever conducted, it ran almost seven decades, tracing a group of people as they lived and worked and played, did medical testing, psychological testing, behavioral testing. And I heard one of the researchers interviewed and uh, the person asking the question said, what was the biggest uh, thing that we learned from the study. He said, we learned all kinds of things, but the, the overwhelming takeaway is that the quality of life is directly linked to the quality of relationships. And the more I've read, uh, I found that when mental health reaches a threshold, a positive threshold, it almost seems like it's easier to build the healthy relationships that will continue that in an upward cycle that good relationships and good mental health push each other up. On the other hand, when that falls below a threshold, the, the poor mental health almost makes it impossible to form the types of long-term healthy relationships that will enable a person to grow. And if you have a city filled with people like this, what would you expect to find? Portland, Oregon. Portland routinely ranks in the top five in national surveys for poor mental health. This is not something to criticize our city. It's another way to love our city. You know, in order to love someone, you have to honor them. In order to honor them, you have to understand them. Not as you want them to be, but as they are. It's one of the things that we can't turn a blind eye to in our city, that it's gonna be harder to build groups here. It's gonna be harder to build teams here. It's gonna be harder to build relationships here. It's gonna take some people who are up for the task. I think here is what good news looks like in our city. Defining and keeping relational promises. Defining and keeping relational promises. 
And that's where we have begin to develop our new mission statement. Last week I shared our vision statement. That's what we see. Here's our mission statement. This is what we're going to do. Building families of marketplace missionaries seeking to disciple the city. Building families. That is a trigger word for so many people. Let's redeem it. Family should be people that you feel safe with. They should, people, they should be people that you like. Your relationship with family can be messy, but there is a covenant that you're going to stick around for each other. What would it look like if we took a season to focus on doing this really well? Like not just assuming it's going to happen, but maybe going away together on a retreat to lay a foundation for this. Maybe taking a season of focus to press into each other's lives, to get to know each other, to know what's unique, to share insecurities, to experience that together. What would it look like to sow a seed of people in this community that know one of the greatest gospel currencies they have is their relationships with others? So building families of marketplace missionaries. What is that? Those are people who don't just add mission to their calendar. These are people that see the calendar as their mission. God, here is my day. It is yours. As I go to the grocery store, as I go to the office cubicle, as I go to the game, as I go wherever I go, give me open eyes for the opportunities you will bring. And marketplace missionaries, these are people who speak the gospel in everyday language. So as opportunities come up, we're not flopping around some script or cube or track, although all of those are wonderful and effective at times. But the gospel is so internalized in our life that it's always leaking out. The more secure we are in ourselves in Jesus, we just kind of can't help but talk about how Jesus is changing things to the point where we talk about it so much with each other, it becomes normal as we talk about it with others. And our goal is to seek to disciple the city. And discipleship requires invitation and promises and the source of Christ, to raise up people who follow, tell, grow, and multiply. I think that so often we think about clever devices that churches can do, gimmicks and campaigns and marketing, and I like all that stuff. I think it has a place. But I think here's what would transform a city. If we could make and keep beautiful relational promises, I can't think of a more stunning fuse for revival. There's a third thing that we will do. We will acknowledge that mission is the destiny of every true disciple. Mission is the destiny of every true disciple. The call today is not just to like modify all your behavior. No, it's like to join into the journey. But today's specific call is just to start praying that your heart would be broken in the same ways that God's would be broken. And that your joy would be fulfilled in the same way that God's would be fulfilled. And all that really is, is aligning yourself with Jesus, which is being his disciple. If you're really in Jesus and he is really in you, the spirit of God indwells you, then over time, you are going to start to want the things he wants and hate the things he hates and seek the things he seeks. That's just the way it's supposed to happen. And yet, we keep redefining what this Christianity stuff is. And in doing so, lose all the power. I was having a conversation with a person. I just, I would give like my left arm for if I could, if I could help them take a step closer to God's plan for their life. It's someone I just love so much. And uh, this person was just asking some advice. And essentially it boiled down to this. How can I have God's power on my plan? I want all of his 
like power and resource, but I'm going to be the brains of the operation. And I said, well, I just don't know that it always works that way. Oftentimes, I can't find many examples outside of Scripture. God's power usually follows God's plan. Have you even asked him what he wants? My friend was like, no. And I said, doesn't that seem strange to you? Because like this call of Jesus, the Bible says that like we confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. My daughter, Valentine, tells me every day, Daddy, I made Jesus the king of my life today. I'm like, really? We'll make your bed. <laughs> Let's see faith into action. Uh, I said, have you ever made Jesus the king of your life? And my friend said, oh, no, I know I'm saved, but I've never made Jesus the king of my life. My heart was broken. Then my friend thought both of those things could exist at the same time. I hope they can. I just don't see a lot of evidence that they can. In fact, I see a lot of evidence in the New Testament calling for authentic faith, helping us to define authentic faith. And the signs the scripture gives, they're life signs. They're not behavioral practices. It's not a checklist of accomplish these and then you're good. It's no, if you have the real thing, these will begin to grow. It's not saying that if you have a garden, you can go to the store and buy some tomatoes and throw them in the, uh, the bed and say, I've got a growing garden. No, it's saying that if you go out to the garden and you see these plants start to grow, you know you've got something alive. And one of the greatest life signs the scripture gives us for true believers is a sense of mission. And if we don't have it, we need to start asking why. And you need to feel safe that you never have to fake it. A couple of years ago, I had a great friend. We met like weekly for breakfast. We were really great friends. And I preached a similar message to this to a group of teenagers. And my friend came up afterwards and he was a decision counselor. So I thought he was going to tell me about a great conversation that he had with a student. And he said, Aaron, I don't know if I really got the real thing. <laughs> I've been going to church a really long time. I just don't know if I really know Jesus. I said, what an awesome opportunity to talk. No judgment. You should feel no shame. And I said, the great, the most glorious thing about this is it's not a pop quiz. It's not an SAT test where you have to fill out the bubbles and get the Scantron results. No, this is a conversation in a relationship. And we can get Jesus in on this conversation right now. And so we sat in a room for an hour, and we prayed, and we talked to each other. And at the end of that hour, my friend had a different countenance on his face. He said, I'll never be the same. Now I know. What a gift. Make no mistake, one day, you will have last words. The people in your life that you love will too. This life, we always have the illusion that it will go on forever. But it won't, will it? It's a vapor. We have too much tragedy and trauma that keep reminding us. I will tell you this, mission is the destiny of every true disciple, and we as a church will never pretend otherwise. We will never be apologetic. Life is too short. It's not that we're trying to compel or push you to grow a congregation. Like, what if people come to know Jesus and they don't go to church here? Okay. We'll see them one day. Like I said a moment ago, you will have last words one day. I'm going to ask for our musicians to come back up in just a moment. We're going to have a chance to reflect. I wonder what yours will be at the end of days. The last thing that you're able to focus on, the way you spent your life. 
Like I told you, my friend Sterling loves a good dad joke, and um, the video that we did of the office spoof, which had some terrible acting from yours truly, has been like circulating online, and um, it was just really fun to see my friend in his element. He's so hilarious. And I did what a lot of us do when we lose someone. We just, like we try to hang on to any piece that we can, that we have from them. We like look at old letters or like play old voice messages. Um, and I was just scrolling through his Twitter feed, and I was like, man, I could just use a really silly, stupid dad joke right now. And I opened up his Twitter, and it was just really interesting to see like what his last post on Earth was going to be. And it wasn't a joke. Like I told you earlier, Sterling was in charge of facilitating people um, to their baptism moment. Like, what a fun job. <laughs> what a fun job. You're always celebrating. And he kept this whiteboard outside of his office, and here's was the last post that he ever had. 2019, baptisms. We already had one. He said 2019 started off great as we were able to see a life changed by Jesus take their next step by celebrating that change through believer's baptism. What a gift Sterling gave me. The example of his life, someone who really lived it. But he also gave us vision. Vision. We as a church will always strive to base our vision in what God sees. And God sees hope in the midst of darkness. In the face of death, he sees life. In the face of struggle, he sees change. In a hopeless world, he sees mission. And so will we. Let's take a moment to reflect. If you feel comfortable, bow your head and close your eyes. Perhaps there's people in the room today and you love Jesus and you know you've given your life to him. There's times in your life where you're not seeing the vision, the mission of God. I've been there. Sometimes I am there. Maybe there's a distraction that's clouding your view. And maybe today you need repentance. Take a moment and repent. But maybe you need healing. Maybe you can't see the needs of others over what you're dealing with, and maybe the most missional thing you can do is to get honest about the healing you need. You're in a safe place for that. And that's where we're gonna live out as a church. Invite people into that journey. I wonder there are people in this room today where you're just not sure, you're like my good friend. I don't know where I stand with God. I just want you to know, whenever you're ready to have that conversation, you will be celebrated, not judged. It will be safe. And at the end, at the end, we're going to walk together to fullness and clarity. I wonder if there's anybody who you just know you've never given it all to Jesus, but today could be the day. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? There's a prowling enemy, a liar, a wicked foe who wants to do nothing but screw your life up, and yet there is still a pursuing savior. The lie says you don't deserve it. That's the best part. You never did, you never will. And yet here it is anyway. Today can be the day, whether you're in this room or watching. Today can be the day. If you want Jesus, the Bible says, trust in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is. 
that God has raised him from the dead. You can give all that you know of yourself to him. The past, present, and the future. The Bible says when you do that, with the fullness of your heart, prayer doesn't have to be perfect, just honest. You'll be changed forever. What are you waiting for, precious person? The Bible says that because we believe this, we work to persuade. We didn't invent this message. We're the ambassadors. There is a king, and he wants you. What do you say? I'm going to pray for us. And when I say amen, we as the church body get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We've set up the elements in the family table in the lobby. And as we take the bread, as Christ has commanded, we remember him, his body that was broken on the cross that we might be healed. As we dip into the juice, we remember the blood that was shed on our behalf that we might be cleansed as clean as snow. And we do this to remember him and celebrate him. This is for everyone who professes Christ as their Savior. When I say amen, I'll go. And as the Spirit leads, I invite you to join. And then we're just going to take two songs to celebrate Jesus and his work and pray for our city and draw close to this wonderful God. And, and let's pray. Jesus, my prayer is that I'll never be the same. I'm so tired of being inspired and then distracted. And the cycle continues. But let me be challenged and rooted in you. And let us be a church that walks after you, cares about what you care about. Father, do this work in our city. Do this work in our church and in our lives. As we set aside a season to pursue you, as we set aside a season to prepare, Jesus, meet us, change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the weekly podcast of Spring of Life Church, where our mission is to invite thirsty people to become disciples of Jesus. For more information or to plan a visit to our church in Portland, visit us at springoflifepdx.com.